Our psalm of the day this morning is found in Psalm 126. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us and we are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed of for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. All men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall. Our epistle lesson this morning is found in 1 Corinthians 15. We are beginning to read in verse 35 and going through the end of the chapter. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel perhaps of wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there's one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There's one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for stars differ from star in glory." So is it with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown perishable, what is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a life, a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. As is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery, We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, as we come to a long and tangled passage that can be very difficult to understand, we ask that your Spirit would lead and guide us into understanding, 
and that you seal all of your promises to our hearts. Graft them into us by your Spirit's work. And speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. In 1973, Ernst Becker, who was a professor at University of California in Berkeley, published his book, The Denial of Death. It's a very interesting read of human psychology and also of really high-powered, in-depth philosophy. 1974, Ernst Becker dies of the cancer that had riddled his body, and two weeks later, he was awarded the Pulitzer Prize. And what is so interesting is that Becker completed the book, The Denial of Death, which was the capstone of his academic career. As his body was decaying, he was writing. And so there is a loss of pretense, despite being very academic, there is no pretension in it. He's asking the fundamental questions of human existence. And the issue that he explores in the book is he's exploring the human situation, explaining that our lives are a constant repression of the fact of our mortality. Now, there was really not an openness to what he was talking about. People were shocked and jarred, but the book gained a readership because there seemed to be something so fundamentally true. He said the most basic fact about human beings is that we attempt to suppress this unresolvable tension that we are mortal and that we must die. Now, he applies this to human psychology, and he asks this question. He says, what is the ideal for mental health then? And this is the conclusion he draws. It must be a paradigm that does not lie about life, death, and reality. That if you're going to be a healthy human being, if you're going to be successful in life, you have to have a paradigm that allows you to orient to the world that doesn't lie about life, death, and reality. Though he was not a Christian, Becker had a certain fascination with Christian beliefs because he understood that Christian beliefs actually freed those who believe in Jesus not to lie about life, death, and reality. There was an ability to be unvarnished about these things that are certain, these universal truths of the human experience, these inalterable realities that strike us all. And so at the core of this uniqueness, though, lies the resurrection of Jesus. It's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 at the start of the chapter, that these are the things of first importance because these are the very truths that allow Christians to deal with those things of life, death, and reality. And it enables to do it in a way in which we're not simply filled with despair and crushed by it, where we don't succumb to these things. And so the question for us this morning is how exactly does the resurrection do this for us? And there's three things in these verses of 35 through 58 as Paul ends his chapter on the resurrection that lead us in the way. First is this, is that the resurrection frees us actually to submit to death. Now it's in verses 35 through 41 that Paul is working to answer the question, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? We know that in Corinth, some were doubting that there was a resurrection of the dead. And one of the critiques seems to be 
Oh, okay, Paul, well, if the dead are going to be raised, if the corpses are going to come out of the grave, then tell us what kind of body they're going to have. Paul's answer doesn't have a lot of varnish on it. He says, you foolish person. And basically the response is, don't let your impoverished imagination say that there's no resurrection of the dead. He goes on then to draw an analogy, and he says that there is, just like there is a seed and there is a plant that emerges on the other side of the death of the seed, so it is with the human body. That we don't know exactly what God has planned for the human body, but we know that it's a glorious state. And that that body that is sown in the earth will rise again. It will rise to be something new. Look how he argues, following along in verse uh, 36, halfway through. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. And so this is his argument here, is that what is planted will then be glorified, that it will reach a new state of existence when Jesus returns and God summons that body into a new transformed experience of life in a physically created world by God. And so Paul argues here that to arrive at this glorified state requires that the Christians submit to death, that the seed has to be planted in the ground, and then it will flower. And so the argument runs, as you follow it in verses 42 and through 44, is that we are free to actually submit to death because we know death is not the end and God has another plan for the body. And so once again, Paul picks up in 42, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown perishable what is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. And it's important here to know when Paul says it's sown a natural body and raised a spiritual body is he is not saying that you are raised as a spiritual vapor. It's very clear here that there is a continuity between the body that's put in the ground and the body that will be raised. That body will be glorified in new and discontinuous in certain ways, but it will, it will be still have some continuity with the old. And so what we're able to do as Christians, because Jesus is up from the dead, is that we can submit to death itself. Because death is not the last word. One of my favorite American novels written by a man named Wallace Stegner. He too was, did not share Christian faith. What was very interested and curious about the things that Christian believed. And in his book, Crossing to Safety, his novel, Crossing to Safety, he tells the story of two families, two couples that had been friends from graduate school where they were in Madison, Wisconsin. And they journey all through life together, seeing each other periodically, almost annually, across 40-some years. They develop a relationship that's deep and abiding. And then one of the women, one of the wives, has stomach cancer, and she dies. And the book ends with a profound meditation, asking the question of how is life to go on now that she is gone. Listen to what Stegner writes. 
He says, if we could have foreseen the future during those good old days in Madison when they were 28, where all of this began, we might not have had the nerve to venture into it. Do you hear what he's saying? That if we had known everything that was going to come, all of the hardship, all of the toil, and then this brutal end for charity, would we have had the courage to actually venture into it? Stegner's asking the question, how do humans face the raw realities of life? It's the same question that Becker was asking as well. And friends, as the Christian, you are free. You're free from the sting of death. You're free to submit yourself to death. And we do so not even just with despair. Look where Paul ends this in verse 57. In 57, he's breaks into doxology and says, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so not only is there a submission, there is a submission of thanksgiving because we know death is not the last word. In Jesus, death has been swallowed up. It's been defeated. It's been destroyed. And so you, as Christian, possess unique resources in the face of death. The second thing that the resurrection does for us, it also focuses salvation on an external, objective event. Now, we've talked a lot over these 15 chapters about the problems that were taking place here in Corinth, and they were severe. We've seen early on from chapter 1 all the way into chapter 15 that there was no part of the Corinthian congregation of these people that was not in some way messed up. But Paul arrives in chapter 15, and he lays the entire messed upness of the church in Corinth at the feet of their messing up the resurrection of Jesus. And what had happened is the Corinthians had customized their faith in Christ. They had made it then appealing to Greco-Roman intellectual and philosophical standards. And they found it unsophisticated, as most Greco-Roman people would have in their day, to believe that God was going to raise dead corpses. And so they wanted to distance themselves from this belief. So it appears what they did is they reinterpreted the resurrection. And they understood resurrection to be some kind of enlightenment in which they gained a secret knowledge from God and secret powers from God. And so they moved away from the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus, put distance between it, and they began to define those who were spiritual, we've seen that word over and over in this letter, as the group of people who had this special knowledge. And so they delighted in the special knowledge of revelations and flights into heaven of all kinds of pietistic activity that was based in religion and experience and emotion. This is what they were centrally focused on. But the thing that Paul responds with here in 1 Corinthians 15 is that the central focus of Christianity is not on an internal action, an internal emotion, or even in a religious experience. Even those things may follow the gospel. They are not the primary focus of the Christian faith that the Christian faith primarily centers in this external objective event of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ, that this is the primary focus, that the focus is not to fall elsewhere, 
but rather is to center upon the first things first, the death and resurrection of Jesus. You notice what Paul says in verse 56. He says, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. And he begins the chapter with a very similar theme about how then the power of sin has been overcome. In verse 2, And by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins. And friends, this is where Paul draws the noose around what is centrally important in the Christian life. That it is not our religious experience. This is not where we base our assurance about how we feel. But rather the Christian life is built around an objective event where our sins testify against us, but Christ has overcome those sins externally, objectively, for us, outside of us. And this is Paul's answer to the Corinthians who had become lost in their fanciful flights and in their mysticism and in all of their enlightenment. They were missing the core of the Christian life. And friends, this is what it means to be truly spiritual. This is what it looks like to be truly spiritual. It is to look to God in Jesus Christ as what he has done outside of us and what he has accomplished for us and that we be rooted in that truth. And then that religious experience and emotion follows after that. But it definitely is not the engine that drives the train. And so this is what the resurrection gives us. It gives us that external objective event to which we look and to which we then orient around. The final thing that the resurrection does for us, though, in the middle of our lives that are full of death and full of catastrophe and full of hardship is that it frees our present labors and toil from vanity. If you're familiar with the first pages of the Bible, you know that when Adam and Eve sinned against God, that the world was cursed. The world that they were given to rule over and subdue was then cursed, and it was by the sweat of Adam's brow that he was going to then toil and trouble, that there were going to be thistles and thorns that fought against him and the commission God continued to give to him to subdue the earth. And friends, that is the vanity that we still experience today, that it is in every bit of the calling that God gives to us, in whatever calling that specifically looks like from you at home or in work or in the church, that we experience vanity, and it can feel futile. It can feel empty. It can be tiresome. It can be fatiguing. And that is not because anything is wrong with that particular calling or that particular church, but it is because of a sin-cursed world where it's by the sweat of the brow that we engage all of our work. And in the middle of all that tension, we are very prone to ask the question, does it really matter? We begin to waver on the answer because we can feel just like Sisyphus, that we've rolled the rock up the hill and it simply returns to its original state. Year over year over year, we watch things like that happen. But you notice where Paul closes 
this great chapter on the resurrection. It's in a very practical place. Verse 58, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. And friends, this is what the resurrection allows us to do. It allows us to stand firm, to be steadfast, to be immovable, to abound in the work of the Lord, knowing that it is not all vanity, because we feel the pressures of that. For some of us, it strikes us in the form of fatigue. We live inside the church and we see compromises that take place. There are compromises that take place, moral failures, pettiness, personalities, agendas, all the things that you can witness year over year in the life of a Christian community. And so some become fatigued by it and they pull away. It just simply makes it empty and seem meaningless. They're tempted to quit, fatigued and tired of the whole bit. This vanity strikes others in disappointment because we can launch out to serve God and we attempt to do so with our best and our, our abilities. We want to offer to God as much as we can. But then it doesn't work out, or it doesn't work out the way that we wanted it to. It can be in our parenting, it can be in our workplace, it can be in all kinds of places. But this disappointment that we experience turns into a disillusionment, and it can wound us deeply. And so we have fatigue pulling at us, we have disappointment, we feel beat up and tired and discouraged. And friends, in a sin-cursed world where there are thorns and thistles, there is every bit of momentum to tell you that your labor is in vain. Paul is saying that there's one thing that can arrest that vanity, and that is the knowledge of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That your labor is not in vain. All the things that you do that are never seen all the disappointments that you experience, all the fatigue, that it is not in vain because Jesus Christ is up from the dead. And that that thing of first importance, that central thing we affirm in the Christian life, actually funds a meaningful life today because none of it will be forgotten by God himself. This is what Paul is explaining to the Corinthians. He wants them to hold on in the middle of all the tensions that were creating the fatigue and all the disappointment that was taking place. That all of their strife, all of their toil, all of their disappointment will not be forgotten by God. That the God who raised Jesus would also raise them and that they would inherit a new world in which all of this toil and trouble was reduced to rubble. It would be destroyed. I didn't mean to rhyme that, sorry. When I first entered into ministry in the church, there were several studies being done by the, the Lilly Fund on the failure of young pastors to thrive. And they were noting that half of young pastors who exited seminary and were ordained were quitting the pastoral vocation. So there's a large focus put on this for pastors to thrive. 
Shortly after reading those studies, I was introduced for the first time in my life to the underbelly of the church. I had exited seminary an idealist, thinking that I was the next John Calvin and would certainly reform any church that would have me. I was going to be my gift to them. And then I encountered something that was wholly different than what I expected. It was hard. There were faults and there were failures. There were things to observe that I would have never imagined. There were sins and there were things that needed to be redeemed. And then there was me and all of my brokenness in the middle of that as well. And I arrived at a place a few short years later where I really contemplated quitting. And I said, huh. That study I read, it suddenly made sense. The people who just a few short years before, previously I had criticized, now I understood them. And here I was, contemplating whether I should step out as well. Two important conversations took place. One was with my mentor, and he looked at me, and without a lot of varnish, Loads of compassion. He said, well, what church do you think Jesus died for? The one that doesn't have sins in it? Thank you, Tim. It was direct and what I needed. And then also there was scripture memory that years before I had done. The topical memory system put out by the navigators. One of the very first verses I memorized was 1 Corinthians 15, 58. I didn't use it a whole lot. But then all of a sudden, this verse came crashing back down. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain. And it was like a lightning bolt. Because there I was in the middle of difficulty and rigor, feeling like everything I had done for these past years in preparing for ministry and then going into ministry, everything I was doing didn't matter no one cared. It just seemed empty. It seemed like vanity. And here came the Word of God charging in that because of the resurrection of the dead, it doesn't matter how you feel about it, Chuck. What matters is that our Lord Jesus is up, and He's the one who will make all these things right. And friends, this is the impetus that allows us to be steadfast, that allows us to be immovable, that allows us to persevere because God has done something outside of us. He has sent Jesus into the world and he has died for the world's sin, taken that judgment into himself and he has been raised and because he is up, all things one day will be made new. And all of our toil and all of our trouble will be reversed. And that, yes, we who have sown in tears will reap with shouts of joy, as Psalm 126 tells us. And it's all worth it because of what lies ahead. This is what the resurrection funds in our lives. It allows us not to live in a lie. We don't suppress the truth about the rigor of creaturely life under the condition of sin. It allows us to look outside of ourselves to have a right standing with God. And the resurrection gives us the affirmation that our present labors, we're to continue in those. 
We continue to bust through the toil. We continue to bust through the thorns and the thistles. And we offer ourselves to God because he knows, and one day he'll make it right. Allow the resurrection to have this ultimate significance for you. And it's here that we avoid Sisyphus, the meaningless life, because we have ultimate meaning in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we do give thanks to you for what the resurrection brings to us. You have done what we could not do, and you have accomplished our salvation outside of us. You have freed us from death. Even now we can submit to death and give thanks to you that it is part of the path to our glorified existence in your new world. And Lord, because of all of this, we can gratefully and gladly serve you today. So may we be steadfast. May we be immovable. May we abound in your work because we hold fast to Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.